on Sunday evening, we've been looking at different apostles and trying to learn a little bit about them and what they did. And we've had to rely upon history and traditions of men to find out what some of these individuals did. And you might look at the Bible and you say, why didn't the Bible tell us what all the apostles did, how they lived, how they died, where they went, where they traveled? That's really not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to bring us to Christ, to teach us about Christ, and to have us saved in the end. We can look at the life of Peter. We can look at the life of Paul. We see some of the things that they uh, experienced. We see others that experienced some of the persecutions. And those things, I believe, are just additions to try to help us to realize that if we suffer persecution, we're not alone. That there are many others that have suffered persecution. And even those that were closest to Jesus that have seen Him and experienced the, the, uh, or witnessed the miracles that He performed, they also went through some of those uh, uh, difficult times also. So I believe that those are written for our encouragement. But the words that they give us are to lead us to heaven, to get us uh, in the right relationship with God and keep us in that right relationship with God. And as we look at that verse tonight, we can see that one of the individuals that we're going to look at is Simon. Not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot. Now, if you look at the King James Version, uh, it looks almost like he has two names. But in most other translations of the Bible, he is referred to as Simon the Zealot. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 4 and Mark chapter 3 and verse 18 is one of the places that we, or two of the places that we read about Simon. And there he is, Simon the Canaanite. And in fact, there's only four verses of Scripture that mentions his name. And that's all that we see uh, that he did or that we can read about what he did. And some think that the word Canaanite refers to the fact that he was from Cana or Canaan and thus uh, had some uh, Gentile blood in him. And others think that this means that he was from the city of Cana. Uh, but uh, language scholars think that the word Canaanite comes from a root word meaning an ardent or a zealous. What all that means, I don't know, but we know that he was from a place, uh, uh, he was a Canaanite, so he was from somewhere that brought forth that name. In Luke chapter 6, verses 15, and Acts chapter 1, and verse 13, he is referred to, like I said, in most translations, other than the King James, as Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were a political party that was extremely nationalistic. There were those who would try to make Simon the brother of Jesus, but there's actually no evidence of that uh, being the case. And so again, as I mentioned, when we look at some of these things, you see a lot of speculation on man's part. And we need to realize that that isn't the inspired Word of God. And so many times people say things that aren't true or not uh, we, you can't prove it one way or the other. But there is no evidence to show that he was the brother of Jesus. And I would suspect that he wasn't though, the brother of Jesus because most of the, when we read about his family, they thought he was a little uh, crazy. Uh, he was mad or, or something wrong with him. And so I don't believe that he was uh, related to Jesus. But Simon teaches us a good lesson, a very important lesson. And that lesson is the fact that God can and will save all kinds of people. 
And I think that we need to realize the blessings that we have to know that we have a God that says we can all be saved, that everyone could be saved if we would just surrender our life to Him and obey the things that He's taught us to do. We can look at Andrew and we can look at Peter. They were uh, humble fishermen. And we know from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, that when Jesus saw them, He just said, Come, follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. Zealots opposed the rule of the Roman government. They sought to overthrow it. And some did it with, wanted to do it with violence, and some being forceful agitators or aggressive agitators trying to overthrow the powers that be in Rome. Matthew was a publican. And that's very interesting that he was a publican or a tax collector as we learned in his lesson. And thus he would be a natural enemy of a man like Simon who was a zealot. He would not like someone that collected taxes for the Roman government if he's wanting to overthrow the government himself. But we can look at the example of Paul who said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13-15, through 15, speaking of himself, he said, "...who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom... I am chief. When we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, we can see some of the awful, terrible things that he did to the Lord's church. When we first learn about him, he's holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen. And in Acts chapter 8, we see that he was one of those that made havoc of the Lord's church by taking people and binding them and putting them into prison. And so there were terrible things that he did. He consented to their death. And so we look at an individual like Saul at the time, who was later referred to as Paul, as a person that did great harm to the body of Christ. But we look at that individual and we can see that God was willing to save him. That, Peter, or that Jesus told him what he needed to do. Go to the city and there he would be told what he must do. And when Ananias came to him and told him, Why tarryest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We see that he did that immediately and we see a change in his life. An about face in his life where he did no longer persecute the church, but he worked to build up the church. And so we can see that Simon, a zealot, one that is against the Roman Empire, and we can see Matthew, who was one that collected taxes for the Roman Empire, that they would be opposites of each other, but the amazing thing is what Jesus can do in their life and to their life. And sometimes we may not think of those things. But Simon was a zealot, and zealots, as I said, were a political party that were begun by Judas of Galilee. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 37, it says, And after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of taxing and threw away or drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Judas led a revolt in A.D. 7. And that was during the time that Quirinius was governor of Syria. And Judas opposed the 10% tax on grain and a 20% tax on fruits and wines. 
And the Jews saw this as a drain on their much needed temple tax. And so they were not up, or they were unhappy. They weren't excited about this tax. And I don't know of any there are too many people that get excited about being taxed. There are some that claim that they don't mind being taxed, but well, I think the government gets enough, and I think most of us would probably say that. But the zealots were nationalistic and patriotic, and they wanted to break with Rome and reestablish the divine monarchy. <clears throat> And so when we look at these these two people, especially Simon and Matthew, they would be enemies of each other. That Simon would not like Matthew because of what he did. But I think that we see that Jesus performed the impossible, what many would call the impossible in human relations, by bringing them together in one harmonious unit. And when you think about the church... When you think about even our congregation, people come from various backgrounds. And when we surrender our life to Christ and we do the things that God wants us to do, and when I say surrender our life to Christ, I mean when we obey the Gospel and we become a Christian. <coughs> when we do that, we all are to work together. We are to come together. We don't look at our differences. We look at what brings us together. And as we mature, we realize the things that are important in this life. And I think that that's what we'll see in Simon's life. You see, Christ used the zeal of Simon. Jesus saw in the twelve certain qualities that were necessary to carry out His will. We talk about the individuals in the parable of the talents, where the one received five and the one received two and the other individual received one. And we talk about the work that they needed to do and how they needed to use those talents. And those that used their talents were blessed by God. But those that did not, or the one that did not use his talent... We see what happened to him. He was cast in outer darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think the point of that parable is not only to show us that we are to use our abilities, but we are to see that God can use whatever talents that we have. That you don't have to have a multitude of talents in order to be pleasing to Him. That if you have one talent, one ability, God expects you to use that ability for the cause of Christ to expand the kingdom of God. And I believe that we see that in the case of the disciples, the apostles, <clears throat> that Jesus used these individuals. He could look at these individuals and He could see what they had. As we studied Nathaniel, we saw that he was a man without guile, as John chapter 1 and verse 47 tells us. And that's what Jesus said about him. And when He looked at Simon, He saw zeal. <clears throat> Here was a man who would fight and die for what he believed in. Brother, we need people like that in the Lord's church. People that are willing to take a stand, whatever the cost may be. It doesn't mean that we take up arms and we go out and we start doing battle. But it means that we stand up for the truth. And whatever comes our way, comes our way. <clears throat> and we're willing to stand up and say what needs to be said. And whatever that happens to us, we realize that we have something better in the hereafter. And so Jesus took the zeal of Simon and rechannel it into the proper direction. And sometimes that's what we need. We can look at people and we can see some of the problems in their life, but we see an underlying good in their life. But maybe the motivation to do the wrong things is still the motivation that would encourage them to do the right thing. <clears throat> and sometimes we need to encourage people and to help people. 
to see what they need to do and lead them and guide them in the right direction. Millions of people have zeal. We can look out in the world today and we can see all kinds of zeal. We can see political zeal. It abounds among Democrats and Republicans alike. It abounds in independence. And we can see people that are very zealous for their side of the argument. We can see people that are zealous for social programs. Some that are very much for them and those that are against them. We see people that are zealous in a conservative stand. And we see people that are zealous for a liberal side. And so those opposites are there, but you see the zeal that each side has. We can also see zeal when it comes to basketball, football, baseball, all kinds of fans that are out there that are very zealous for their team. I find it amazing sometimes when they pan the crowd. Then you see people that have their body painted the color of the team. I thought that, I always thought that was kind of weird, but that kind of shows you the zeal that they have for that team. And I hope, Kevin, you're not one of those people I'm talking about. <laughs> but I think that's just, it shows the zeal that they have. And some of them do look a little crazy. But you see what we're talking about. People are zealous. They're zealous for a lot of different things in our world. Imagine what would happen if you could take that zeal and incorporate it into living a Christian life, <clears throat> into taking the Gospel out into the world, into visiting the sick, into helping the poor, and doing all the things that as Christians we're supposed to do. You see, we see much zeal also in the religious world. <clears throat> you get knocks on the door from different organizations, different churches uh, that are out there, denominations that are out there, knocking on your door, handing you their track, trying to get you to listen to what they have to say. <clears throat> and they're very zealous. They may not get you today, but they'll come back. And they'll keep coming back until they figure out you know what you're talking about. And then they may not come back. But the thing is, <clears throat> that so many of them have a zeal but it's without knowledge. It's not without. It's without the knowledge of God's word. And I'm sure that if you've ever talked to some of these individuals that knock on our door that have great zeal, and you start talking about the Bible, and you ask them, I know I had one that come over, or come by on in the summer, and I'm like, just flip over to this verse. Flip over to this verse. They didn't want to flip over to that verse. Zeal without knowledge. Is going to lead us down the wrong path. And so we need to have a knowledge of God's Word. <clears throat> in fact, the Jews were like that. It was Paul who said in Romans chapter 10, verses 1-3, through Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they bring ignorance... <clears throat> They, they, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Paul looked at his Jewish friends, his people, and he realized that they had a zeal, but it was not according to knowledge. You see, if they had a knowledge of God's Word, if they truly understood the prophecies and all the things that had been predicted in the Old Testament, and when they looked at Jesus, they would have seen that He fulfilled those prophecies. They had a zeal. 
And you can see their false teaching going out and trying to creep it into the New, the New Testament church. Bringing in Old Testament doctrine into the New Testament. And that's not what the plan was. But they had a zeal and they were very zealous. In fact, you know, there was that one group that they weren't going to eat until they saw that Paul was dead. Why? Well, they had a zeal. But it wasn't according to knowledge. And we see false teachers in Galatia, in the churches of Galatia, that brought forth their false doctrine, who tried to bring in Old Testament ritual and commands into the New Testament church. And Paul said that wasn't to be. And we see it all very early on in Acts chapter 15, where they had to have a discussion with the apostles concerning circumcision, because some thought that that should be required of everybody. And that's just not what God had in mind. But you see, people that were willing to die and to take the life of other people who disagreed with them because of their zeal. Jesus added knowledge to Simon's zeal. In our case, we need to add zeal to our knowledge. In Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 11, it says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another, <clears throat> not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Well, what's that telling us? Don't be slothful, people. Whatever the business is, especially if it's the business of doing the Lord's business work, then don't be slothful. Don't be laid back. Don't be lazy. Do what God wants you to do and do it with all your might. Have that zeal that God wants us to have. As we said this morning, we can do it. And God wants us to do it. And He gives us the means and the ways to accomplish that. And we need encouragers in the church to say, yes, you can. Because sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes it's tough. Because when you look around, sometimes you know, you've heard the old saying, <clears throat> 10% do 90% of the work in the church. And really, that's not the way it should be. You shouldn't look to the preacher or elders or deacons or anyone else to go visit someone. You need to go visit them yourself. It's all of our responsibilities. Say, well, I don't like that. Well, maybe you don't like that. But I would imagine that that person doesn't like being sick or being shut up in that nursing home or having some of the things happen to them in their lives that they're dealing with. And so we can be encouragers, but we need to be zealous with knowledge according to God's Word. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, "...who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works." What are good works? How do we determine what's good works? Well, we look in the Bible and let God determine what's good works. Now, Jesus gives us a picture of some of the things that is going to come up on a judgment. And so we know that those things are going to be addressed. Nakedness, uh, someone not having clothes, someone not having food, someone not having something to drink, someone being sick, those that are in prison, all of those things are going to come up. And we need to have a zeal to go out and get involved in people's lives. And sometimes we don't want to get involved in people's lives because there's a price that we have to pay. And it's called sacrifice. 
And many times we don't want to sacrifice. Oh, we want others to sacrifice for us. But as I said many times, you hear people say, well, I was sick and nobody came. Nobody come to visit me. And I always say, did you go visit anyone when they were sick? Well, no, that's, I just I can't do that. Well, why do you expect someone to come to you if you're not willing to go? You see, sometimes it, we're not willing to sacrifice. And that's like a, a bad word when it comes to Christians because we need to be able to sacrifice and be willing to sacrifice. In fact, we're supposed to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Simon learned the value of the kingdom of God over the kingdoms of this world. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Sometimes we need to learn that lesson also. As I mentioned political parties that are very zealous, sometimes we fall into that category ourselves. Where we're very zealous about our beliefs about what should or shouldn't take place. And we concern ourselves a great deal with all the things that are happening in our society. That's not the most important thing in life. Those things are important, but it's not the most important. There's nothing wrong with being concerned and doing what we can to keep the government in a, in, on a straight and narrow, doing what God wants them to do or set them up to do. But we also need to realize that first and foremost, the most important kingdom is the kingdom of God. And I ask, is that the one that's first in your life? Would you rather talk to someone about the kingdom of God or Washington? or Lansing, or the local government. Which one would you rather talk about? In Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a treasure hid in a field, <clears throat> which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. And again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchantman seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one, one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That parable is in reference to the kingdom of heaven. And it's trying to show us that the kingdom of heaven is the most valuable thing that we can possess. And I think that certainly we could relate to the individual who found a treasure that hid it and went and tried to, took everything that he had and he bought that field so that he could have that treasure. Obviously, he realized that that treasure was probably worth more than all that he had to buy it with. But he was willing to do that. And the man that had the, found the good pearl sold what he had or got rid of what he had to, so he could purchase that pearl of great price. We see the value of treasures. We see the value of pearls. Do we see the value of the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is worth more than all of those things. What would you do to have the kingdom of heaven?
What would you give up? What would you sacrifice so that you could have that treasure in heaven? What would you give up? What would you sacrifice so you could have that goodly pearl that was a great price? Oh, we'd probably give up a lot. But think about heaven. It's worth more than all that. Jesus said, What shall a man give in exchange for his life or his soul? What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? This world is very valuable. We enjoy it. We take pleasure in it. But we also need to realize that this world is not our home. That we have a better place. And so we need to live our lives with the zeal, knowing that this life isn't where we're going to stay. You see, Simon saw in Jesus the power to truly change not only this world, but the world to come. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 29 and 30, it says, "...and everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for My name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and last shall be first." And what are we going to get if we give up people? You know, I mentioned this morning that sometimes it's not a what that gets in our way, it's a who that gets in our way. And sometimes we need to give those things up that are hindering us from living the Christian life. Sometimes it may not be possible to give those things up. But we have to take a stand and let people know what's the most important thing in our life. And that is our relationship with God. God will bless us if we will do His will. Simon learned who the real enemies were. It wasn't Matthew. It wasn't the Roman Empire. It was Satan and his angels. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Brethren, there's a lot of evil in this world. But our enemy is Satan. And those that do his bidding. He learned that the or Simon learned that the way to bring about change was not through force. In Matthew chapter twenty six and verse fifty two, then said Jesus unto him. Put up again thy sword into thy pla- into his place, <clears throat> for all that take the sword shall perish with the sword. You see, Peter was willing to pull out a sword and take someone's life to defend Christ. Cut off someone's ear. But then Jesus rebuked him for what he did. He healed the man, put the ear back on. We're not to force people to obey the gospel. And we're not to force people to change. But we are to teach the Gospel of Christ. And that seed when it's planted in the hearts of men and women will change their lives if they want to change. And sometimes people don't want to change. There are people that want to live in that sin-sick world. There are people that want to do those things. And they don't want to give it up. There are people that are in those things, in those things of the world, that want out. And sometimes they just don't know how to get out. And it's our responsibility to help them to know the truth. 
But we're not to force people to obey the Gospel. We're not to force people to live the Christian life. We don't see that in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. You wonder what Simon was thinking when he heard those words? How many of us do what Jesus said there? Love our enemies. Bless them that curse us. Do good to them that hate us. And pray for them that despitefully use us. I think there's a valuable lesson there when we look at Simon's life and the influence and the impact that Jesus had on it. You can see the various backgrounds of all the disciples. But Jesus brought them together and changed all of them to where they became a unit that went out into the world and shared the Gospel with those that were lost. I believe that that's still possible in the Lord's church today. That when we follow Christ, when we listen to His Word, it will bring us together as opposed to pulling us apart. You think about it, when people start being pulled apart, it's not because of this book. It's because of the devil. When we look at Simon, we see that history tells us that he went to Africa, Armenia, <clears throat> Mesopotamia, uh, Spain, and Britain. We're told that he was killed in Persia, that his body was sawn in half. Some of his bones are supposedly in Italy, France, and Germany. When we look at Simon, we see a great example of the fact that God would have all men to be saved. And no one is beyond the reach of salvation, but they're lost if they choose to remain there. The problem is we need to get out and tell people about it. When we come in contact with them, we need to share that good news. If they don't want to hear it, then you move on. But do the best that you can in living an example so that they see that Christ is in you. That they know that there's something different about your life than the average worker or the average schoolmate or the average neighbor or the average family member. Let them see that there's something different in your life. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 who would have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. God wants everyone to be saved. You say, well, if that's what He wanted, why didn't He just make it so everyone was saved? Well, the answer is simple. Not everybody wants to be saved. And He wants people to be saved because they want to be. And so He's told us what we need to do. And we need to do that if we want to have heaven as our home. Simon teaches us that the Lord can use whatever a man has to offer. Whatever talent, whatever ability you have, God can use it to further His kingdom. And so just like Simon, we must learn that this world is of little importance when it's compared to the next world, the next life. Brethren, this world is not our home. We are just passing through. 
So let us learn from some of these examples, even though there's only a little bit told about us or about it, <clears throat> these individuals, I think there's a great deal that we can learn. Jesus said to go in all the world and preach the gospel. To every creature he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That gospel is the fact that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose victorious over the grave. We see that in first Timothy or first Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses one through four. We are to take that gospel out into the world. People need to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In Hebrews 11 and verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. We must be willing to turn away from our sin and stop doing the things that we shouldn't do, and turn and put our trust in God and follow His way as opposed to the world. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. We also realize that Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, verse 32, that we're to confess Him before men. And if we'll confess Him before men, He'll confess us before His Father, which is in heaven. And then after we've done all of those things, <clears throat> we're buried with our Lord in baptism. And yes, it's a physical thing. We go down in that water, but we come up a new creature. And it's in that event that our sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. So tonight, if you would like to do that, if you're not a member of the church, we would encourage you to do that. If you need to respond, please do so while we stand and sing.